Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Keith Marmer. Keith is the Chief Innovation and Economic Engagement Officer at the Partners for Innovation, Ventures, Outreach, and Technology Center, also known as Pivot Center, at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Prior to becoming the Chief Innovation and Economic Engagement Officer of the Pivot Center, Keith served as the Associate Vice President for Technology and Venture Commercialization and Corporate Partners at Utah. Prior to his time at Utah, Keith was the co-founder and managing director of SG3 Ventures, a venture capital firm targeting early life science investments with primary focus on fund creation, raising investment capital, sourcing deals, due diligence, and portfolio management. Prior to SG3 Ventures, Keith was the chief business officer at the Penn Center for Innovation, where he led the day-to-day activities of technology commercialization, new ventures, and industry partnerships with revenue responsibility of over $75 million and a staff across seven operating units. Prior to becoming the chief business officer at the Penn Center, Keith was the director of technology commercialization and associate dean for research innovation and associate professor at Penn State University. Before his time at Penn State, Keith was the vice president of technology transfer and business development, assistant dean and assistant professor at the University of the Sciences in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Prior to his time at the University of the Sciences, Keith co-founded a management consulting firm, was a chief executive officer and chief technical officer at a healthcare company called Physiometrics, and the chief executive officer of PT Plus, a rehabilitation services company. And with that very impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Keith. Thanks so much for having me, Lisa. It's great to be here. Thanks so much again for taking part in the podcast. Keith, I generally like to start the podcast off by asking our guests about their journey to tech transfer. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up in Salt Lake City and at the University of Utah? Sure. Um, By background, I I was actually a practicing physical therapist, which led me to uh, start my first two companies in in similar med tech environment. Um, So I I spent probably more than half my professional life as an entrepreneur. Uh, I like to tell people I got into tech transfer completely by accident. I had uh, exited my my last company, I was consulting, and I got a call out of the clear blue from uh, my alma mater, would I be interested in teaching a course in entrepreneurship? And I said yes, Uh, enjoyed teaching, still do, but learned very quickly that teaching was pulling me further away from being hands-on and I actually went to uh, to the dean to to resign, thinking this isn't really going to work out. And he dragged me into the president's office. And long story short, they created a role that um, 
was basically doing business development for the university, but they gave me a portion of my FTE doing this thing called tech transfer. And as soon as I started to understand what it was, because I was not familiar with, with academic tech transfer, I, I immediately gravitated to it. And that's how I got started. I've spent uh, close to 15 years in the tech transfer community as increasing levels of responsibility and, and actually had, had stepped away from, from university tech transfer for a little while uh, and was working in venture capital when uh, I was approached for the opportunity uh, to come to Utah. And I was, I was living in Philadelphia at the time. And uh, for really both personal reasons, as well as the opportunity to be part of the University of Utah, I just felt like we could do something special here. And, and that's what brought me to Salt Lake. Wow, that's a, a great story. And in fact, um, before we talk about the Pivot Center and the University of Utah, I listened recently to a podcast on which you were a guest during which you suggested changing the phrase tech transfer to innovation management. And I thought the arguments you made on this point were particularly interesting. Would you mind sharing some of those with our listeners? Sure. I think tech transfer, it, it can't be argued that it's evolved over the last 10, 20 years in so many ways. And I'm sure we'll chat about some of them. But I think fundamentally for me, tech transfer always sort of connoted that there was this physical moment in time where you handed something to somebody and it was it was transactional in nature. And I, I think for those of us who've been in the field um, or even around it as an investor, entrepreneur, what have you, th- there's sort of this undeniable reality that tech transfer is anything but that moment in time. It is really just the summation of a lot of other things that I sort of bracket as as being relationship-oriented at at its core. And so if you think about the fact that we are managing innovation to not a single end, but multiple ends, and we do so through this integrated network of relationships, I think we're not really transferring technology as much as we're managing the innovation or the process, if you will. So I, I feel very strongly that we do ourselves a disservice as practitioners by referring to what we do as technology transfer rather than innovation management. I thought that was a really interesting point, and, and you make some really good arguments. It'll be interesting to see if if that gets any traction or if tech transfer is just so ingrained that it's one of those things that'll never change. I'm not running for office on the platform, so I'm I'm open to my colleagues <laughs> sharing different, uh, different views. Awesome. Well, we'll have to see, uh, hopefully, whenever we can all meet again in person at Autumn National, maybe that'll be a, a good kind of uh, topic for conversation during some of the breaks. So switching gears a little bit, let's talk about Pivot Center. For those of our listeners who are not familiar with it, can you tell us a little bit more about Pivot Center? Sure. So Pivot Center is new uh, within the last few months. When I when I came to University of Utah, I took over uh, the Center for Technology and Venture Commercialization, 
which uh, by practice, in effect, was the university's technology transfer office or innovation management office, if I may. And again, to the earlier point, we were involved in a number of things, uh, starting, launching, managing incubators, accelerators, venture fund, a number of other things. And there was a, a very long process, I won't go into the details, where um, the president had asked us to, to look at what we do and, and what was sort of best practice. And we, we identified a few things. One, the university to date hadn't had uh, an office for corporate engagement. Um, economic development was being done by a number of folks across campus, including us. And when we began benchmarking uh, against our peers, as well as surveying internal and external stakeholders, we, we heard very loudly and clearly that folks wanted there to be a single office responsible for all of these things. And so that was the genesis of Pivot Center. And Pivot Center, uh, for everyone to understand, um, while we always are pivoting in, in the pr progression of technology uh, and, and in, in startups and, and whatnot, actually stands for Partners for Innovation, Ventures, Outreach, and Technology. So it's actually an acronym as well. So how have some of the roles in the technology venture and commercialization center changed now that it's become Pivot Center? So at our core, the, the basic functions or, 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 or the functions, I won't call them basic, for um, invention management, uh, patent prosecution, those all remain the same. What we did was... Um, both restructure and, and expand simultaneously, if you will. Uh, the, the addition formally of becoming the, the single office responsible for corporate engagement, which is beyond licensing, beyond industry-sponsored research, we're responsible under that, um, uh, that heading for corporate engagement for things like workforce development, um, uh, upskilling and reskilling workforce, uh, so there's 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 a much broader mandate, and we also are um, now on point for economic development. So that's everything from public private partnerships. Obviously, startups are a form of economic development when you consider job creation, company creation, uh, incremental tax revenue growth. Uh, but by putting them under one roof. Uh, e even though it all happened during the pandemic, so it's a Zoom roof. Uh, we are we 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 felt strongly it was important not to simply have the office of corporate engagement, the office of technology and venture commercialization, and the office of economic development. It's a fully integrated organization under the single name of Pivot Center. So given this fully integrated uh, center now, how is it organized? Can you tell us a little bit about how you've structured things? Sure. So for those, those three core functions, we, we have um, teams that roll up to one of three senior directors. Uh, senior director for commercialization is Mary Albertson. Senior director for economic development is Paul Corson. 
and senior director for corporate engagement is Chris Ostrander. So those are the three folks that that are managing these 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 three enterprises, if you will. Um, they're they're tasked with with as I said, maintaining them in a fully integrated fashion. And then we have um, someone who oversees operations uh, across the entire spectrum, in effect, the back office for finance, compliance, et cetera, our senior director for operations, um, Shalene Watkins. And and then communication is also a big thing. We've been um, fortunate to recruit Teresa Gubler as our senior director for, for communications to be able to really communicate on so many levels, uh, internally, education programs, networking, but also the impact that we're having. Switching gears a little bit, let's talk about inventions and licensing, and let's start off talking about inventions. Can you tell us a little bit about the average number of invention disclosures you, you receive? Sure. We're seeing about 200 disclosures a year on average. Uh, we are benchmarking against the, the standard autumn data, and we're, we're pretty much right. We feel right where we should be, especially with a focus over the last several years on increasing the quality of disclosures. We feel good about our numbers. How about number of active licenses? Uh, active licenses were a little over 300. That's a great number. And how about some of your top earning inventions? What would you say those are? So currently, our, our top, uh, top earners are in PCR. No surprise in the current environment uh, that, that's been performing uh, better than ever. Uh, we've got a monoclonal antibody that's generating a, a fair bit of revenue. Um, genetic testing, we have a long history uh, in, in the genetic space with uh, arguably the world's largest genomic database and history companies like Myriad. Uh, we've got a technology in artificial intelligence doing uh, counting and classification of cells, uh, typically a manual process done, done visually. Uh, and we also have um, a new DNA test that just hit uh, the market not too long ago. Wow, that's an impressive list. And I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with with Myriad, um, especially if you practice in the life science space. For sure. We, we, we're very strong in the life sciences, but our, even our, our College of Engineering generates a, a strong number of disclosures. And, and bioengineering, we're, we're seeing a lot of interdisciplinary disclosures, which is really great to see. That's awesome. So what would you say, Keith, is most important when we talk about managing innovations to have the greatest opportunity for success? It, wow, great question. It, it, it's For me, that the, the answer sort of spans a few different areas. I, I think the ultimate outcome is impact. We want to see the technology have impact on society. So when we talk about Myriad. It's a good example, as you said, because people are familiar. Um, it was, in the history of our office, all time, the single largest revenue producer. But when we talk about it, we talk about the impact on, on women's lives yeah. and, and families' lives. It, 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 the, the ability to do early detection in breast cancer, Absolutely. The, the impact is, is far greater in, in terms of measure through lives 
than it is through dollars. And so that is truly the lens that we look at every one of our um, uh, our, our opportunities through. But I but I'm I'm sensitive to the fact that it's it's a long journey to get there for 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 every technology, but every technology needs a great team. And so we focus heavily since the majority of our, our licenses are going into startups as, as they are in, in most universities, that we, we spend the time to develop relationships, uh, to establish uh, with, with strong entrepreneurial experience so that these technologies have the best opportunity to hit the market and, and have impact. Now, we've talked a little bit about inventions at the University of Utah, and um, that translates into patents, and you know that sometimes leads to patent litigation. And whenever I ask this question, I usually get some groans. Um, but I'm curious about, uh, and I believe you've had some, I mean, Myriad has had cases go all the way to the Supreme Court, particularly in, with respect to subject matter eligibility. Uh, what's your office's approach to litigation and how aggressive are you in defending potentially infringed patents or are you less um, risk averse in that sense? I, I would describe our, our approach to litigation as thoughtful. We don't have either a hands-off or an aggressive, uh, pervasive mindset when it comes to this. We're presented with, with issues on, on an infrequent basis, but but it happens a few times a year, as it does for for a lot of big universities, and we manage each one based on the merits or lack of for for each situation. We we tend to try and balance uh, between protecting the IP that we we believe or know to have value, um, but we also it, because in most instances. This is a situation where the, the the IP is licensed. It's a question of what is what is the licensee thinking about here, and how vigorous are they looking to defend, and are our interests and attitudes aligned? And a lot of that will play into uh, how we think about it, as well as what the license agreement says. Who's up? Who's up first? Right? Yeah. Uh, that's that's going to carry a lot of. Our, our attitude as far as how engaged we have to be contractually speaking as well. I think thoughtful is a great answer. That's one I've not heard before. And I think that that is the right approach, particularly from a university setting. So you mentioned before about corporate engagement. Um, and I like to ask about corporate partners and the role they play at universities. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the corporate partners that are at the University of Utah and the impact and role they play with the Pivot Center? So corporate partnerships take a handful of, of shapes and sizes. And as I said, we to date uh, only recently established a formal corporate engagement, but the culture on our campus is, is, is quite entrepreneurial, quite industrious, and so a lot, a lot of our investigators have uh, strong relationships with industry. So as a result, you see a number of um, master agreements, for example, with industry. We have um, some real strength uh, of relationships with uh, the imaging sector, for example, 
Um, so you, 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 you can, you can see where that research, uh, funding the relationship leading to commercialization, but also funding student programs as well. We, we see and have relationships that are also invaluable to supporting, uh, student education, student experience and internships. Um, I, I think more recently what we're seeing is, looking for unique opportunities built on relationships. And so common theme with me is I, I, I try to really keep relationships uh, at the center of, of, our, of our approach to a lot of things. And great example of this is a company we spun out about six years ago called Re- Recursion Pharmaceuticals. They are a company um, sort of leading the way in the at the intersection of AI and, and therapeutics. And a, a lot of folks will refer to that as digital therapeutics, give it whatever name you like. But recursion uh, recently became a unicorn. They're, they're still privately held. Their valuation in the last round was over a billion dollars. They have a, a, a major partnership that was recently announced with a major pharmaceutical company. And they're growing really rapidly. And the CEO, Chris Gibson, has been incredibly committed to keeping the company here in Utah. But Chris has also been incredibly committed to our ecosystem, as have I. And we were having lunch almost two years ago now. And at the time, our office was in the throes of trying to open up a wet lab incubator for, for our life science spinouts. And we were wrestling to, to work through the processes. And, and, and as a public institution, there are all sorts of requirements we have to meet. So committed, but it's a, it's a, it's a slow, tedious process. And when he asked me the question, I sort of rolled my eyes, uh, you know, how's it going? And I, I, I think he saw by the look on my face that it was a little frustrating. And so I told him a little bit about where we were at. And he said, well, it's interesting because we still have our offices in Research Park, about a block from where you're trying to open up the incubator. We were thinking about opening up an incubator, but didn't want to um, conflict with what you're doing. And it was one of those classic lunches where by the end of lunch, we had sort of sketched out this plan for a partnership on, on the incubator on the back of a napkin, um, or maybe it was the back of a cell phone. I don't, I don't remember. But the, the thing of it was, it was the relationship that Chris and I had, but I think more importantly, the relationship that Recursion and the university had and the value we each placed on it that led to our ability to very quickly put an agreement in place where this public-private partnership, uh, we each brought something to the table that led very quickly to the opening of Altitude Lab, which is, is the incubator that, that recently launched it, it, as, as an end result of this partnership. And how recent was the launch of, of that incubator? Was that within the last year or so? It was. So we uh, began admitting companies about two, three months ago. Uh, it's a little bit limited because of the pandemic. Uh, we'll, we'll do more formal opening of, of uh, additional aspects of the space 
uh, early early in 2021. But we've admitted, I believe, at six or seven companies. We have up to about 20 space for about 20 companies, and, and then we'll have a a graduation cycle on a on a yearly basis, max up to two years. That's great, and that's great that it worked out that way through a corporate partner. So that's a a pretty amazing amazing story. So staying on the topic of corporate partners, would you say, Keith, they've led to more deals or differently structured deals? How has that worked there at the university? I I don't know about more deals because I'm not sure more relative to what. Sure. Um, Different deals. Certainly, I think it's, it's evolutionary. I, I think if you talk to folks in our office, they would tell you I'm pretty relentless on pushing for how do we make things easier? And I don't always mean for ourselves. A lot of times I'll sit in a room and we'll be talking about a deal and and I will play the role of devil's advocate and say, boy, if I was on the other side of the table, I would push back pretty hard on this. And not to say that we want to give away the the house, so to speak, but there are a lot of things that have nothing to do with the difference between 2% or 2.5% of a royalty. There are so many sort of non-monetary aspects to a deal, frankly, more non-monetary than monetary if you you read through a typical license agreement. And, And what are those things that that industry partners or potential industry partners are going to um, have heartburn over. And we can't make them all go away. There are some things that are either best practice or because we're a public university or because we're compliant with federal funding or Bayh-Dole requirements that are always going to be in our documents. But Beyond that, there there are there are ways that we can we can be thoughtful and and not necessarily be bound by the past, and so that's where I would tell you we're we're continuing to try and be evolutionary, try and be accommodating when somebody says, "Have you considered X?" and and we're in the middle of one right now that is new, uh, not only for the university, but I called around to a lot of colleagues and. This is a, a, a new type of uh, structured arrangement because this, this company, big company, has some unique circumstances. It would have been so easy to just say no. And we're over a year in and we're almost done with what will be a pretty interesting scenario or set of scenarios, actually. And uh, it, it hopefully teaches us something that we can build on for for new ways of thinking for for future corporate partnerships. Oh, that's interesting. It'll be interesting once that becomes public to to learn more about that one. So I guess we'll stay tuned on to hear more about that in the future. So what about philanthropic organizations? Do you have a lot of involvement with those types of foundations and, and other uh, corporations at the university? We do. We've enjoyed uh, good relationships with a number of foundations that have funded research over the years and uh, groups like Mellon, CAC, uh, a lot of the the traditional Gates Foundation groups that are increasingly taking uh, a more proactive mindset towards funding early stage translational research and even basic research. 
I think one of the ones in the last couple of years that's been very interesting to be a part of is uh, Schmidt Futures, Eric Schmidt of Google. Uh, his his foundation uh, formed uh, the this Schmidt Futures program, and we were one of four universities that was selected to participate. And in effect, I'll I'll distill it down. What what they they said is they they want to see opportunities, ideas, in effect, that will raise the standard of living by $10,000 for at least 10,000 people annually. And we've run a couple of cycles of this program, and we're now seeing this evolution because they make several million dollars available to to progress and, and, and promote the evolution of these ideas that that ultimately turn into companies and, and can have impact. To me, that's been one of the more interesting ones because it's not simply a research grant. It, it's actually a challenge. And we took the approach, each, each university was, was given the opportunity to decide how to approach it. We took the approach, sort of, what can what can we do across the entire state? So our president, Ruth Watkins, likes to say, we're the university for Utah, not just the University of Utah. And so what we did is we established a statewide program where we called for proposals. And certainly we saw proposals from, from university faculty and employees but we had proposals from all over the state. And then there was, there was a committee that was put together, uh, again, rep- representing a great cross-section of Utah that selected some finalists. And we're now beginning to see the, um, the implementation of, of the, the dollars with our finalists. Uh, and I'm excited to see the, the impact that it can have based on the mandate from, from the Schmidt Foundation. Wow, that's a really great example of uh, a really neat program that came out of a foundation. So Keith, reflecting on past license transactions or partnership that you might have had there at the university, what might have you done differently uh, if you knew then what you know now? (laughs) It's probably too long a list for the podcast. (laughs) Okay, we have plenty of time. (laughs) Thanks. I think I try to learn from every experience. And the one thing that I keep coming back to is, again, the relationship. I, I used to stress a lot more over various aspects of a deal that I don't. And I'm frankly not really involved in the day-to-days of the deal anymore um, as much as I used to be. So the things that I, I, I look for and the things that I try and impress upon our, our, our team and our organization are what is the impact this deal can have? And have you structured it in a way where you've done the best to optimize the potential for impact? Similarly, how do you think about value creation? All too often, we think about taking a protective stance. We think about mitigating risk. And I remember having this conversation 
with the general counsel of a university I used to be at. And I remember her telling me, I know the attorneys in my office are tasked with really avoiding risk, but I know you're never going to bring me a risk-free deal. So if you're not going to bring me a risk-free deal, we either have to shut you down or figure out how you do it where the benefits are going to outweigh the risk. And that's, I, I think, something we all probably inherently know and we all tend to forget in the heat of, you know, getting perhaps a little too myopic sometimes on page 27 of a draft license agreement. And it happens to, to, to all of us. It happens to the best of us. And so I, I think I'm just at a point now where my push is impact, value creation. And value creation can be both monetary and non-monetary. There's value back to our faculty from a service standpoint that, that we have to maintain a, a healthy balance of. There's reputational value to the institution. And now's a great time when we're managing innovations uh, that can impact the pandemic, something I've been actively involved in oh, I'm for, sure. for a while, uh, as a lot of my colleagues across the country have. And then the those guiding principles, I think I, I've, I've continued to, to try and learn and promote, flow down and influence our behaviors from there. And speaking of impact, I would like to switch gears a little bit and talk about startups. And I know Pivot Center has developed a series of programs to help startups called Startup 360. Can you tell us a little bit more about these programs? Sure. Startup 360 was an idea born about three and a half years ago, intended to effectively be what the name says, provide a, a 360 degree support infrastructure around our startup companies. And we're starting 10, 15 companies a year. Again, like a lot of big universities, the numbers are growing. But I told our folks when I first got here, I don't care how many startups we do. I care how many quality startups we do, how many startups will have impact, how many startups will, will create value. And when you put that lens on, then what you realize is the job is just starting when you sign the license. You're not done. And so it requires you look around and say, well, what's going on in our ecosystem? And I, I know it's a, a huge source of debate. You know, Boston and the Bay Area, they, they don't even need these programs. They can do whatever they want. It takes care of itself. And to me, that's not really a debate worth having because it tends to be more, well, I've got XYZ in Utah and you don't have it in pick your location. It doesn't make it better or worse. We just have to figure out how do we support these companies and how do we provide that 360? Maybe we have to provide 355 degrees or 200 degrees. It's all going to vary. But fundamentally, when we think about that, that 360 degree we sort of break it into two buckets, talent and resources. And so on the talent side, because I believe, um, again, you're, you're putting these, these innovations in the hands of a team, 
you've really got to optimize your talent. So we created three programs, an executive in residence, an entrepreneur in residence, and a mentor in residence program. And we distinguish intentionally between the three because in our community, we have executives that are willing to give our, uh, of their time and go deep. They're not, they may be successful venture capitalists or entrepreneurs, but they're not looking for their next gig. They're not looking for their next deal. So we have them do a lot of different things um, from going deep on a technology to going into the lab and working with someone, you name it, sort of spans a variety of areas. Entrepreneurs in residence, we have between six and 12 at any time. They're all serial entrepreneurs experienced and they are looking for their next gig. And we, we use um, sort of a, a concierge approach, a, a highly curated program. We have, we have dedicated people who all they do is manage the facilitation of the relationship between the entrepreneur and the inventor and make sure that there's a progression, that, that information is flowing and, and the, the entrepreneur and, and the inventor are cultivating a relationship because that's going to be one of the most valuable relationships of all if we're talking about achieving impact and value creation. So that, that's short version on how that program works. And then we have mentors who will provide a, a variety of support in um, mentoring both faculty on, on having an entrepreneurial mindset, as well as sometimes you, you have first-time entrepreneurs or somebody who had a successful corporate career and is, is pivoting into uh, their first entrepreneurial gig as a CEO uh, some of them will maybe take a board seat, what have you. Philosophically, when we meet someone, we're we're not looking for volume again. We're really looking for for the the relationship. And and when there's a quality relationship, we try to meet people where they are, and then help situate them in a program that's best for them, not inherently best for us. If we're low on EIRs, but somebody's a better mentor in residence. We want them to be where they're going to feel like they're adding the most value, and that's why we have those programs. Beyond that, um, we we also are making introductions um, and and doing um, pitch prep and and things of that nature uh, with, with with the the investor community, both locally and nationally. And then we have sort of another um, suite of of support. With um, I hate using the term vendor because again I like to think of them more as partners. Everything from law firms, accounting firms, and insurance, all the things that um, a startup needs through their progression. Some of which they know they know they're going to need a corporate law firm, and and these are firms that don't do any work for us. They're not conflicted in any way, but we vetted them. We've established that they will provide services either for no cost or deferred cost and, and they're quality firms, reputable firms, um, all the way through to a lot of times things folks don't think about when they're starting a company. We make sure those introductions happen so that those services can be provided in, in the right way at the right time. Could you share with us a few of your successful startups? So historically, we talked about uh, Myriad, obviously, is, is, is one a lot of folks know. 
Um, going back, we, we've also had companies uh, like BioFire, for example, is, is a good one. Early PCR technology was developed by a faculty member who just retired at our, our university. Um, he was a co-founder of this company. It was acquired by Bu Maru a few years back. Um, more recently, companies like uh, Recursion Pharmaceuticals is a good example. Also, companies like ID by DNA, uh, Fabric Genomics. As I said earlier, we, we've done uh, historically for decades a tremendous amount of work in the, the discovery and the genomic space. We also have the oldest department of uh, bioinformatics in the country. And so what you see over time is the, the recurring themes where we've got this longstanding history of doing research and development work, where a lot of the companies have, have sort of followed on from there. Those are a few. Um, we've started well over 300 companies in the history of the university. Um, there are some other technologies that came out that didn't go through tech transfer, unfortunately, uh, that also trace back to the U. Companies like Adobe and Pixar uh, that, that have their roots in the labs of, of University of Utah that, unfortunately, there were no tech transfer policies that existed back in the day that would have had us be uh, claiming companies like that. Yeah. Lesson learned. You can chalk that up to a lesson learned, as I like to refer to it. Uh, switching gears a little bit, what would you say are two of your office's biggest challenges? So I, I think I, I mentioned one of them earlier. As, as we've now become Pivot Center and we're taking this fully integrated approach to what we do, it's really challenging for folks that work in a given discipline to recognize that what they're managing primarily primary responsibility for touches so many other folks and in their discipline and ensuring the communication. So really working with our teams and and creating these, these cross-functional groups um, establishing foundations for, for communications, uh, especially nowadays. We're even doing daily stand-ups on Zoom where folks from various teams are coming together to ensure that that communication remains strong. I think that that, that true integration that we're striving for is one that will never, you know, there is no such thing as perfect, but I'd say that's a big one. And at the risk of going down the rabbit hole on that a little further, I think it's it's worth noting that historically, a lot of universities have had licensing officers or technology managers that have applied what we refer to as a cradle-to-grave approach, meaning one individual handles everything from the beginning of time till the end of time. And even before we were Pivot Center, we broke that mold. And said, for pretty much reasons mentioned, we wanted to take a much more cross-functional approach to, to what we were doing. And so we were successful in breaking down that model um, about two, three years ago. We've noticed there are some areas that still sort of rear up and present challenges. And we're, we're, we're always tweaking different processes or programs or communications along that front. 
But now when you put all this other stuff into the mix with corporate engagement, economic development, and then the, the, the oddball project that always comes over the transom, uh, typically from like Office of the President or the VPR, um, it, you've, you've got to have your team sort of wired to expect that you're not just going to say, here, you know, Joe, go run with this. Mary, go run with that. It's, it's got to be, all right, we're going to pull together a group. Let's talk about how we're going to execute on this. And when we break the huddle, everybody knows what they're doing. Um, and, and so I think, you know, th- I, I could argue that's probably our five biggest challenges, but, but I, I'd say that's our, our biggest one. The, the other one that, uh, you know, a lot of my folks like to tell me, but I, I question, but I'll mention it is, is resourcing. Um, I mentioned it in part because it's always a constant battle. I know when I talk to my colleagues, you know, what's your patent budget? What's your patent budget? How much money do you have for staff? How many, you know, how much can you pay somebody, et cetera? And I, I'm not going to say that we have more money than we can spend. We do not. And especially in today's environment, we are, um, we, we are fiscally constrained but that said, what I think it does is provide a challenge that perhaps can also be an opportunity insofar as it forces us to focus on quality and make decisions in a manner that are perhaps far more thoughtful than we ever had to be. But also, it causes hard decisions to have to be made. It's, it's not about picking winners and losers, but it is about picking things that have potential. And we like to say, we're not telling you no, we're simply saying this may not be going in the right direction. And and actually, I was looking at some data uh, about two weeks ago, for example, going through our triage process data. What we found currently is we have now a a pretty rigorous four-month process of evaluation. We use a combination of our own team's external resources for market analysis, technology analysis, IP analysis. It's pretty robust. Um, but we're filing, when we get to that first meeting, on only about 25% initially of, of disclosures. But fully two-thirds of them were going back to the faculty member and saying, here's the feedback. It's not no, but you haven't enabled this. Um, this. This won't be commercially viable. We're never going to get these claims. Um, there are 17 other people doing this in the market, or you, you know, the classic. You're you've you've got a solution in search of a problem. Like gr- great idea. There, there's just perhaps de minimis commercial application. We're only uh, statistically saying no in less than five percent of the cases. So what what it sort of says to me is we're using these analytics uh, aggressively now to, again, take that challenge, flip it to an opportunity and say we have to build programming around the really detailed education. This is no longer let's run the classic patenting 101 course. Right. This is about. How do we really help faculty and get folks in the lab that can can apply that entrepreneurial mindset or commercial thinking? Switching gears a little bit, I wanted to talk about women inventors and entrepreneurs. That's a very important topic. Does the 
Pivot Center have any programs to help encourage and assist women inventors and entrepreneurs? And if so, could you tell us a little bit about those programs? So, so the the one that I'll mention in in particular is uh, in partnership with uh, Recursion, our Altitude Lab program. So we actually have um, programming where we um, explicitly are looking to promote and support historically underrepresented groups um, as entrepreneurs. And uh, we actually created as part of the programming for for Altitude Lab, a grant program where um, these underrepresented groups, women in particular, um, can apply and, and be resident in the incubator for free. Uh, there, are, there are also mentorship programs that, that, are, that are part of that program. I, I know um, folks like Nicole Mercier at WashU have, have created these really phenomenal um, uh, women entrepreneur programs. And we're trying to look to, to folks that are um, providing leadership in that area and 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 bring more best practices in, but I think Altitude Lab is is probably our our foremost example. That's a really good one. Switching gears again, can you talk a little bit about some of the organizations that you're involved in? Things like Autumn LES and what value you think they add. So we're involved in a lot of organizations, as you mentioned, Autumn LES, UIDP. If I were to list them out, it's 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 a lot of acronyms, right? E- even groups that are a little more specialized, like InnovaSource and 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 their Community of Action program, um, AURP, NSET2, UEDA, NACRO, APLU. Um, I, I think we we get different things from each of them, and I'm I'm seeing over time. Um, some are are providing sort of these broad based platforms. Others are being very specific and, and, and really targeting particular aspects of what we do. I think that speaks to um, what we were talking about earlier, the, this broader innovation management. It's not just tech transfer. It's not these, these two or three particular unique skill sets. It's, it's the integration of all of these things. And so we encourage our folks to participate in all of these organizations because you'll get something a little bit different from each of them. And then it's what you do with it that I think is really critical is build relationships, build your network and, and take away those few nuggets that you get whenever we get to participate in any of these uh, organizational conferences, educational programs so I, I think there are a lot of organizations that are doing great work that, that we continue to support. Now, what's your view on credentialing things like registered technology transfer professional, the RTTP designation? Do you think that makes a difference? So I have to start by saying I do not have those credentials. I, I'm familiar with them. I'm aware of them. I've, I've explored them. Uh, I came into this industry a little bit differently, as I said, so it was never really a a trajectory for me. So it may be that I'm not well suited to to offer an opinion, but in chatting with folks that have achieved these credentials, that support these credentials, everything that I hear suggests that 
they provide tremendous education, tremendous value and, and recognition. So I think the more you can do to raise the level of professionalism in whatever it is we're doing, um, I, I, I think is all good. But again, for me personally, I can't speak to it from a career trajectory standpoint. I generally like to close the podcast by asking my guests if they could have any three wishes granted. So if you could have three wishes granted for the Pivot Center or a vision for Pivot Center realized, what would that be? So vision for the for Pivot Center, I, I think we're just getting started. And I think we are fortunate to have uh, this platform that, that we're building out on. So I'm going to say I already got my first wish, if you will. I, I think the thing that I, I tend to find myself lamenting over more than I, I wish I, I was is a lot of times we talk about we can't do this, we can't do that. And so I burn the other two wishes um, <laughs> around not worrying about what we can't do and more what we can do. And it ties, sure. it ties back to getting the wish about Pivot Center. And, and, and being in, in, in this arena now for, for going on 15 years, I, I, I would say, wow, I, I wish the president of the university would only recognize if we could do X. Well, maybe that's not in the cards. Maybe it is. But you've still got tons of great work to go do and work within the parameters. Just don't stop pushing. So my, my, my wish isn't so much that somebody would give me a magic wand and I would change the minds of people who just don't quote, don't get us. Right. Sure. It's more about how do we sort of change our own mindset and say, we just have to go out and work at this and we get accolades for what we do. Maybe not as often as, as we feel we deserve, but it's happening on a regular basis. And we've talked about lots of examples and I'm fortunate to have been part of, very, very tiny, small part of some really visible, really incredible deals that have had impact. Let's just keep focusing on that. So my, my wish would be that we orient our focus around this broader innovation management and allow our, our passion uh, uh, for what we do and our co- ability to communicate it to sort of take care of the rest. That's a really great wish. I hope you can continue moving forward on that front. Thank you. Well, Keith, I can't thank you enough for all your insights and time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? Uh, Sure. They can send me an email at keith.marmer at utah.edu, K-E-I-T-H dot M-A-R-M-E-R at utah.edu. Great. Thanks so much again, Keith. It's been really great to have this opportunity to talk to you. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, 
Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.